0: Episode number 78, Elaine Wynn: Healing Children Through Storytelling.
1: Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales, they are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question.
2: Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here.
1: We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow
2: your passion.
1: And live with grace.
0: Hey, welcome to The Art of Storytelling with Children. I am so thrilled that you have made it here with us because this is Brother Wolf and I have a exciting guest on the cast tonight. I have Elaine Wynn. She is going to share with us her experiences and her ability and her talent at using storytelling to heal and work with children who have been injured, either emotionally or physically. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Elaine.
2: Hi, Eric. Thank you. I'm glad to be here tonight.
0: In a moment, I'm going to ask you to tell a story. But first, let me tell the audience a little bit about Elaine Wynn. She was a storyteller at first. Stories flowed freely around the kitchen table from her home or growing up from the farm she grew up on she told stories to her young children and then in the early 70s finished a degree in storytelling and image development for nonprofits she began performing as a storyteller in 1982 when i was just 12 years old <laughs> Got a degree in the psychology of human development, storytelling and healing as a main focus, and became a licensed psychologist. She worked six years at Minneapolis Children's Medical Center and developed a story called The Rainbow Dream, used by children and adult cancer groups for many years. Later, her work using storytelling to teach self-management to two- to five-year-olds and asthma with Daniel Cohn, a doctor, was published in the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis and in numerous medical and psychological journals in Europe. Research on using stories and games as teaching methods showed significant reduction in emergency clinic and hospital visits over a two-year period. Ellen has performed and taught storytelling and storytelling as a healing art in Norway, Sweden, England, Ecuador, Japan, and Singapore, as well as numerous places around Minnesota and the U.S., Last year, she presented a performance workshop at the 12th Annual Pediatric Emergency Management of Humanitarian Disasters in Cleveland. She won grand prize with her husband, storyteller Larry Johnson, at the Tokyo Video Festival for a storied exchange between children in St. Paul in London. She and Larry conduct and teach about Cousin Camp, which they developed with their 13 grandchildren. So, Elaine, do you have a story you'd like to share with us tonight?
2: I do, Now, I don't know if any of you have a brother or a sister, but if you do, you may or you may not ever argue or ever have argued with your brother or sister. That could be... Well, once in a while, my brother and I used to argue. He was one of three brothers, but he was the youngest, and they said that he was the only one, the baby, for six years. And then I came along, and that was not such a good thing in his thinking. Well, my brother, you see, the thing was, he never would do anything mean to me in terms of hitting or pushing or anything like that, because he knew that my mother would really get after him for that. But there was something he could do that was harder for me, and it was teasing. It wasn't even words-teasing. Have you ever seen that kind of teasing that's just a raised eyebrow or a shoulder flipped in your direction? Just an odd little kind of thing that makes you know that you're being teased or you're being kind of pushed around. Well, he did do the verbal teasing too, the talking teasing. Well, maybe your brother or your sister never does that. But that's what my brother did. And one day we were outside... Mother had asked us to do some cleanup work. We lived on a farm, and the cleanup work was to cut the pigweeds. He was cutting the pigweeds, and it was my job to stack them up. Pigweeds are really tough to cut. They're strong, forceful weeds, and some of them were as tall as I was at seven years old. We were cutting those and stacking them up. I don't know what the argument was about. At first, it all started really easy. Little Buck was around. Buck was our border collie puppy. We raised border collies. We loved border collies, and that was one thing we agreed on. We loved Buck. We loved to play with him. And we were occupied with him in between stacking the weeds and cutting the weeds. But then the thing happened, and it just went on and on until I was so mad so mad at my brother i i just was getting to that point where i couldn't see very well anymore i don't know if you've ever had that happen to you it's really not a good thing and i got so furious that i took a big pigweed and i just swished it around in the pig muck you see we were right out by the pig pen and i swished it in there and i say muck because muck Pigmuck is different from mud. Mud is dirt. Pigmuck, well, that's worse than dirt. And I swished it in there, and as I turned around to where he was, he was sprinting to the house. I thought, I'm going right after him. I'm gonna go after him and get him. I went up, but he was already inside. Now, mother, mother was on the telephone. She was on one of those old-fashioned phones that we used to have that were on the wall. Do you remember the ones? Well, you probably don't remember the ones, but there was a kind of phone that you talked right into, and if your telephone was on the wall, you had to face the wall, and then it had another piece that was a receiver, and you held that up to your ear. That's where Mother was. She was talking with her best friend, and not paying any attention to what was going on with us. Well, my brother was sitting on a chair, leaning back, and he had that look that I disliked. That look that teased me even further. And when he leaned back on a kitchen chair, he looked more strong and powerful than he did in ordinary time. And he was just so, so maddening to me that I took that pigweed I walked up to the window there was a screen on the window and he grinned saying "Uh, go ahead why didn't you hit me with it and I took that pigweed whacked it up on the screen and there was splattering all over inside on the windowsill around the window and mother ended her telephone call she turned around to me she saw what had happened sort of and she said Elaine, what are you doing? And then she came outside. All right, young lady, that tone of voice, you can clean it up. She got the cleaning supplies, the water, the brush, and there I was rubbing on the screen and with the brush and taking the rags and cleaning it off. My brother came out and he said, oh, I think I'll go ride the horse. So he headed out to ride the horse while I cleaned the screen for two hours. And, you know, I thought about a lot when I was cleaning that screen. And the one thing I thought was, he's never going to make me mad enough, so I'll do anything like this again. And as far as I remember, he never has. So that's my story.
0: Do you use the story when working with kids who have temper issues?
2: Um, yeah, sometimes with relationship issues too, and you know it would depend on it would de- depend on the situation. You know, sometimes you w- you don't want to encourage temper, but. On the other hand there's there's just a, I tend not to tell or say what stories are about but with this one I do kind of end it with a little bit of resolution because there is a learning in it for sure you know that when you're so out of control with anger you can really hurt yourself and that's really you know a valuable and important thing that I might want to communicate I do it you know i I tell a story in groups i've done it in schools and i've I've done it in many places, other places where kids are and it's you know when you're when you're telling to an audience where you can see the eyes and the faces you you get that feedback that really um, changes the story every time, but yes, it's a very valuable story for that, and you can't you know I've used the story with adults too and um, but one of the things with children I think that's very valuable is that sometimes they like to know that adults do things that are kind of or have done things that are kind of wacky and aren't really right or what somebody would say wasn't right and in working with kids it's a fine balance between being able to manage your own behavior and also having the courage and the imagination to do things sometimes a little bit out of the box. But these are, uh, you know, these are, yeah, that's a very good story, actually, Eric.
0: (laughs) You said a moment ago that you don't like to explain your stories. Yes. Yes. Do you think that in terms of health and in terms of the benefit for the listener, that stories are more healing when they are not explained, when they don't have a clear moral that's outlined at the end?
2: Oh, yes. I think in general, stories speak for themselves. I wouldn't say that there's necessarily more benefit. I think it depends on the situation and it, and it depends on the story. So um, I I think that in general, stories are very powerful and they speak for themselves. What you want, you know, when, when you tell a story to someone in a healing place, you want, I'll say that the best thing as a teller you can do is to know what the story means to you as deeply as possible tell it as well as you can. And, and if you're in a room uh, with one person or a small group, of course, it's, it's different from being in a larger group. You want to, you know, uh, in Tai Chi, there's a, there's a description called soft eyes. Well, I think you need soft eyes and you need soft presence, because it can be very overpowering if you're, one-on-one with someone and telling a story, so you you moderate the tone of the story and the way you tell, uh, given you know to the to the situation. Uh, but you you cannot ever predict what someone will get from a story, and that's the exciting part, the dangerous opportunity, because. What someone gets from the story may be very unique and a little bit different from what you expect. You know, so, so it gives you many, many ways to, uh, to go with a story, and it really depends on the listener.
0: So in the practice of using storytelling and healing, we once again see the pattern of the importance of listening to your audience while telling a story.
2: Very much. That's very true. And, you know, I, I, for, I wrote an article once for a magazine, um, the Department of Health and Human Services. I don't know if it still publishes It's called Children Today.
1: This is Elizabeth Ellis, and you've been listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children.
0: With working with this type of storytelling, it becomes particularly important to be very sensitive to the mind field of emotions that patients or the audience may be going through and to tell stories that are mm-hmm. effective at, at offering hope or healing to the audience well, I mean,
2: yes and I I said I realize you know there's there's probably uh many people from many different areas of storytelling on the call and I, I have often said to parents um, don't worry about being therapeutic with your storytelling. Just the act of doing the storytelling will will be therapeutic. And that's true. If someone, um, if, if you're not trained in some therapeutic work, I, I always, uh, suggest to people find someone that you can work with who is doing a specific kind of healing work and work with that person. You'll gain a lot from it and they'll gain a lot from you as well. But then taking the story and working with it, telling it as, as wonderfully as you can, and knowing the story for yourself. Because when you know the story yourself, there's a great healing quality that comes from the story as it comes out of your body, as, as you have internalized the story. And then if you're connected with it, the listener will connect with it in their own way, in the way that they need to connect with it. I think that it's really important to not try to be therapeutic unless you are, unless you have that intention that you're working in, in the way of being a therapeutic storyteller. To really take the time to learn more and more about what you're doing with storytelling in a therapeutic way by by being in an envir- environment or with a person who who is doing that kind of work and um, getting the feedback between each of you.
0: What has your experience been like with your various work experiences and storytelling? Is most of your storytelling experience in a work setting with a psychiatric environment?
2: Yes, it has been. You know, it was very, uh, funny. I just want to say this little piece. We were, uh, really blessed. Larry and I were in, uh, Germany a good number of years ago and had the opportunity to meet, uh, Dr. Wolf Dietrich Sigmund. He was a psychiatrist that ran, uh, a, a psychiatric hospital in Germany and he was called the fairy tale doctor. And he was one of the people who formed the International Storytelling Association after the Second World War. They looked at the brokenness and they decided that stories were one of the things that communicated across all boundaries. And so when we went to um, meet with him at St. Rochas, I... I don't speak German. Larry, uh, my husband, speaks German. And so he was able to translate. And I, I really was so riveted listening to him. And he took us through the hospital. And he, oh, there were paintings everywhere that had been done by people, patients in the hospital. And then he would gather people once a week uh, and do storytelling, and then people could do their stories then, after that and and there would be a discussion of the stories. But he said, "Oh, the most important thing is dance and movement, even better than stories, though I do love stories <laughs> and uh you know that that's something actually kind of I have done sometimes movement." and story or done it with someone else but uh that that is a very significant thing um in healing i think the the opportunity to have have movement and story together i i started out uh my clinical work i worked at children's hospital in minneapolis and um hospital work is very challenging because you never know what's going to happen you know the children the child may have to go for uh shots or, or may have to go for tests and uh or may not be feeling very well you could make a plan to do something and it just won't work out and then you might plan a little storytelling in a community room in the hospital and again one person might come or no one might come or maybe seven people would come you just you have to really be willing and able to go with the flow of the lives of the children. And when I worked with the kids with cancer, one day I came, I was going to tell a story in one of the wards, and the oncologist doc had uh, give, had the nurses give the kids squirt guns because he realized that he was the person that would really cause a lot of pain for the kids. And even though he was helping them, it wasn't pleasant. And so he wanted them to be able to get him back a little bit. So I was getting ready to tell a story, and all of a sudden he came into the ward, and the squirt guns erupted. Everyone was in this massive water fight in the room. And it was it was one of the most delightful days that I ever spent uh, working in the wards with kids with cancer. But Uh, That's an example of how unexpected things can be there. Uh, What I was doing there was creating a story, and it's called The Rainbow Dream, and it was a story that was created for the kids to learn how to use uh, relaxation mental imagery to help them with their symptoms, and some of the kids said that they thought, it helped them in even more ways than that but to manage the symptoms of of their cancer and uh one day i had gone in to tell the story to um mom and and uh her the, the girl was in the room in bed and her little brother was there and i asked her what she thought of relaxation mental imagery because people had been teaching her how to do this And she said, I think it's dumb. And I thought, oh, great. Here I've come. I'm going to tell a story now. And I've got all these people in the room here, and she thinks it's dumb. Okay, plunge forward. So I went ahead, told the story, and she seemed very involved. So when I finished, as I was doing with all of the kids, they were the consultants to the story because... I wanted them to change it and shape it and help with it so that it would be the best possible story it could be for for the other people who used it. And when I finished the story she said that was so great. And I I really I didn't spend much time in the room after that. I went out and sat down and I was I was shaking because I thought She taught me so much that day about storytelling and the effect of it, effect of it and, and, and how a story could communicate so much more than sometimes than just talking, explaining something. So that was certainly one of the, one of the places that I started that was challenging. Sometimes kids would make their own stories. They would, uh, uh, Princess Diana and Charles got married when I was working there and, and two girls who'd been in the hospital for a long time created this just incredible royal wedding and it was, uh, they used, (laughs) they used a bedpan for the Royal Coach, and they had all their stuffed animals lined up along the bed railings and toilet paper for the train coming out of miss piggy's dress and uh, the angleworm was the Anglican priest and uh the uh the the video people came in and videoed it for the for the uh television studio in the hospital, and that was really exciting to them to see their story of this event and they talked all the parts and and uh acted this out and really to be able to uh see that on TV was a very big thing for them. So I've done that. I worked with asthma, I worked with two to five year olds and uh at first I was terrified thinking, what in the world am I doing? <laughs> Working with two year olds, I found actually and the parents confirmed that the two-year-old kids did the best because they hadn't learned habits that they needed to change and uh, the kids as they got a little older did but uh, we were very excited because they learned a lot of ways through the stories and the games that they could cope with their asthma symptoms and the doctor visits and hospital visits dropped um, significantly during the time, the two years that we were working with that project and doing uh, doing the stories. And then I worked in a family guidance clinic for uh, about six years. And uh, there I worked a lot. The, the person who ran the clinic was a neuropsychologist, and she was very good at um, just determining what kinds of things would help kids the most, in terms of um, school. And so sometimes I'd go to schools and I'd need to tell a story of, uh, you know, of what's happening with this particular child and how could we make it better, Uh, how could we all work together. And then I I would work with stories. We did groups. Um, I worked with a group of children who had developmental delays and some physical uh, challenges, that was just a wonderful group it was a um young teenage group and and uh again they taught me so many things but um uh, so i'd work with
0: hold up here hold up um i i got a bunch of questions to come out of the stories you've been telling all right about your experience using healing stories in these different settings yeah and In particular, I hear you saying over and over and over again that you learn from the population, you learn from the audience, and you learn by listening to them. Yeah. When you say that, what do you mean?
2: Well, I always try, and and everyone that I know does this work. You know, you always think ahead of time. You have some intentionality. You also trust intuition. Some of the more exciting things that I've had happen have come from a flash, and that worked just fine. But it's so important to listen because, you know, like I said before, how people, you know when you go and listen to a storytelling performance, you know, probably every person in the room has a different place they entered the story. But um, for me... When I started this, I didn't know anyone else who was doing this work. And so it was just something that, it was a drive. It was like something I just had to do and and knew that I was going to do. Um, and I think in a way that made me more humble because I I, I knew that I didn't know for sure what I was doing. And, uh, but I had supporters, you know, at the hospital, the doctor who ran medical education and the assistant physician there were, they just understood how stories could communicate. And that, that was one of the things that really pushed me forward to continue with it. But I think if you listen to what someone says, then you can begin a dialogue that comes out of the story. And you can, Set the environment where the, their story becomes, um, more, they're more willing to begin to share their story very often. And, and it becomes more that way. The more that story is in the room, the more likely the person is to, to tell more of their story. And, uh, one of the first times I worked with a, a child just had so many, many harsh, uh, realities in his life. And I told the Giant's Junkyard, and this is a story that Larry wrote some years ago for a collection here in Minneapolis. And, um, the Giant is transformed, so that was wonderful for him. But also, just the fact of his being a giant. And he wanted me to tell that story every time we met. I did it five times. That was, again, a place where you asked about the learning. He taught me that when I would go into a room with a child, that to that child I was really big and they were really small. And and that's true for adults in general. And I didn't... Re- I didn't understand until he taught me how much, how big that is for a child to feel that smallness and vulnerability. But, you know, after five times, he didn't want to hear the story anymore. He was ready to move on. He had learned he'd gotten from it what he needed.
0: I've never performed at a hospital. I've never performed in front of an audience of of people who are terminally ill or sick in some way. And one of the things that comes to mind for me listening um, to you talk about this subject is is in particular, what stories should I bring to such a performance if I had the opportunity to do such a thing, what material should I be bringing to the table you know what what is an appropriate um, base of material to work with? Well, I think folk tales are a
2: really good um uh, start because. Folk tales have a simple format, and I like folk tales. They're kind of satisfying because there's a sort of justice to them a lot of times, and I I think that is a satisfying feeling to communicate. I think that done with care, uh, personal experience, stories can be really good. You know, music is always good if you do something with music, you like to sing or can sing or you do something with a music person with music that's very enjoyable i think that um, certainly stories with uh, a lightness with uh, some feeling and with um, i would say in in general until you get to know the environment certainly a gentleness to them because when children are in the hospital, uh, they're struggling with things that most adults have never faced, and many times, and so uh, things that spur them on, make them feel lighthearted, hearted uh, comforted. I, I remember once Larry w- worked at the hospital. He he did the TV station and. Before I was there, uh, one of the doctors called and a boy boy was really having a very challenging time and having really difficulty breathing and and the doctor called him up to tell a story. At that point, it didn't matter what the story was. It was the process of storytelling, which became comforting and relaxing. And I think that's an important thing to remember, and your voice, I think that communicating warmth and friendliness through your voice is very powerful, and also, you know, the range of your feelings in the story, communicating that with feeling is just really an enormous healing tool. It's its As important as visualizing in some way what's happening in the story as a communicator.
0: What about working with other populations?
2: When you're just starting to do uh, that kind of story with a group, you know, uh, um, we used to go to this marvelous place called Dakota's Children. It it was a home for uh, deeply developmentally delayed children and it was one of my favorite places to go, just doing little fairy tales and folk tales and uh, the three bears and the three billy goats gruff. Uh, because, and again, a huge thing there was communicating feelings through the voice, feelings of the characters through voice was so huge because the children there understood the feelings Instantly. They they were one of the most responsive audiences I've ever worked with. And we would do things like there was a, a rocking, you know, those boats that rock. And sometimes that would be the bridge for the Billy Goat's gruff. And, uh, you know, kids would roll up with a wheelchair and play a character. And I just... Um, you know, tried and true stories, in that case, even the stories that the kids had even heard before, it was new because you were doing it and, you know, if, if they had an opportunity to participate in the story, that, that was very exciting and fun too. So, um, stories that, if, if you're working with a group, stories that have movement or that have sound or slapping your knees for a sound effect or uh calling you know uh putting your hand around your voice and or around your mouth and calling out asking them to be a part of it singing all of those things can really uh be a wonderful healing part of the story and again you know the healing part of it is your voice your presence your love of the
0: story So a lot of the value of healing storytelling as an art form is in just being there and being entirely present for the audience.
2: I believe that.
0: We're going to open up the call to people on the line. Who's there? Go right ahead. Let's take the first caller. Paula. What's your name?
1: Paula Nantero. Hey, Paula. Hey. Elaine's one of my board members at North Star, and so I have to ask her a question and put her on the spot. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering, Elaine, when you uh, when you tell stories, is when kids are in trouble, is it ever appropriate, or have you ever done a story in which the the character is undergoing something traumatic? Is that helpful, or is it better to distract them with? Things that make them feel
2: lighter. I, I was talking more generally, you know, when Eric asked me about that question, but yes, absolutely. Um, one of the sets of stories I love is Nancy Davis's um, uh, stories. Uh, she has a whole series, a collection of working with trauma with stories, and one of my favorite ones is a child who's just criticized from. Morning until night. And in this case, it's parents and then it carries over to school and everything because every, there, there's just distraction going on, um, constantly. And he decides to go away and he, he walks away and takes a nap and gets a message from this healing fairy or healing person in in the woods and who says uh you got to check your eyes you've got these cloudy contact lenses on and try it take them off so he takes them off and or you've got your ears are plugged you know take those earplugs out of your ears and you'll be able to hear and he realizes and this can be about a girl or a boy but um they realized that, uh, you're not seeing. I'm not seeing well. I'm, now I can see better. I can hear better. And, and she says, you know, when you go back, there are going to be people that, that have cloudy contacts and they got plugs in their ears. So what you're going to need to do is find the people who really don't treat you like that who don't talk to you like that who don't do those things and you know you'll go and and you can be with them and you'll find that they will know you and understand you in a different way and so he does that he goes back nobody even noticed he was gone and um that he's able then to be more careful and just stay away from people who are mean to him and and um and doesn't hear a lot of the things that were once by bother- that once bothered him so much it kind of rolls off and uh so it, it it has a resolution the story has a resolution to it some of the stories are more metaphorical obviously you know it depends on uh where where you where you are in the process you definitely you're, you're looking to use a story in a way that, that can be helpful. I, I tend, uh, stories that, uh, there's a story that I like very much. It's called The Juniper Tree. It's a Grimm's collected tale. And it's really horrendous. Uh, the, the, the boy is kind of tricked by the stepmother of course the evil stepmother story into killing his little sister she's tricked the the sister's tricked into killing the brother knocks his head off and there's this whole process where the boy becomes a bird and flies around and keeps crying out this story and finally in the end uh the the stepmother is she's killed And the little sister, he's reunited with his little sister and his father. Well, I've told that story in performance sometimes, and people are so grossed out by it. It really is the truth. That story is a true story, as far as I could tell. That would be a story that I have told to adults more often. Sometimes the story, the harshness of what happens is transformative. Because a person's able to say, well, I see this is happening in my life, or I see this is happening to my child, and I'm going to stop this, or how can I stop this, and what can I do to make this different? So, no, the, I, I could go on with many examples of how uh the stories certainly are more complex and sometimes violent and sometimes harsh. But in general, you're you're often looking for a resolution in a story of some kind. It may not be the answer, but certainly you're looking for resolution. And and also working a lot with formats where the person's own story can come out.
0: Next caller, go right ahead.
2: Yes, uh,
3: Sarah from Mississippi. Um, Elaine, have you ever worked with teenagers or or young adults with addiction problems?
2: Addiction problems, yes, I have. And you're going to ask me, uh, I bet, about stories?
3: Well, you know, yes. And my what I'm involved with, I'm I'm in an opportunity where I am doing some storytelling at a recovery center with women, young women, probably um, in their 20s. And we do discuss the stories. And I always have this little pang about that um, because I think there's something lost in discussing. But then they like it. They like the discussion. So it seems like we gain something too. And I just wanted to share that I experience it as a quandary and just wonder
2: what your take is on it. A quandary in discussing it? No, I think in the therapeutic... Uh, value of stories, that environment, that it's very valuable to be able to uh, not even necessarily um, talk about the story. I bet you find this sometimes, that the stories trigger other things for people, and they begin, and it may veer off into a direction that doesn't even seem related to the story, but it works out just fine. And I think that when you 've created a story environment that there's it's a rich place where people can um, can go with it to where they need to go is is that does that sound right to you
3: yeah, they love it It's like I can do no wrong <laughs> I could go in there at this point and tell anything, and they would love it, um, so they're getting something out of it, yeah
0: yeah I'd like to recommend um two books to you, sure. How one of them is Tatterhood, which is a wonderful collection of multicultural folk tales from around the world of strong women. And the other one is Jack Zype's wonderful book of feminist folktales called Don't Bet on the Prince. And I've spent many years reading those stories of both those books to my daughter.
2: Okay, thanks. Well, thank you, Elaine. Yes, thanks for being here.
0: Go ahead. We'll have one more. We got we we got time for one more caller on the call tonight. Go right ahead.
2: Uh, this is Carol McCormick.
1: Hi, Elaine. Hi, Carol. I was wondering if you've done storytelling with dying children or dying adults, and if there's any um, things you'd like to say about that in that situation.
2: Oh, let's see. I I have. Um, yeah, I have done that. You know, what's interesting about that is I've done more of working. With people shaping their own stories. But I think that, you know, a story that I love that's, uh, in that environment is, um, like Meat Loves Salt. Uh, it's kind of a King Lear. I'm sure you know that one. Um, yeah. It, and, uh, you know, it's such, in a way, such a tragic story about, uh, how a child, how, how a parent really doesn't listen to the child and then, uh, how the child, uh, really can't give the parent what they need, you know, as they're aging. A meatloaf salt is a little bit different because the child really does give the parent what he needs. Um and I, I think what's really good about it is that there's the, the realization that a, a wound has been made and that that there's there's sorrow and there's forgiveness in it um i think i think those are good stories because um wherever the child is um or the of the adult is there's a resolution uh, a life review process going on and i'm sure you've you've seen that where there's value in looking over the life, and it, it's it's hard to see that with kids because um, ha- they they are at a stage of life that is so much older than their years. But yet, I I used to call the kids at the hospital the ascended masters sometimes because they seemed so so wise. So that would be one type of story that I can think of.
1: Like meat love salt. About that too, is that it explains that people uh, think of love in different ways. How they show love. Yes. The father didn't think she loved him.
2: Yeah. You no, know, he
1: wanted he wanted more grandiose things.
2: Right. He couldn't hear her language. You know, another story that I like that is about that is a psyche and um, Demeter. Demeter. I'm sorry, Demeter and. Uh, Persephone story. Yeah, because uh, there's one version of it, and I always put this in the story when I tell it. Demeter can't hear words on a slant. She can only hear words up and down or crossways. And Psyche, or, or I mean, um, Persephone, on her way back, is kind of lost, and it happens that Leto, Demeter's friend, is able to hear words on a slant. And
1: um, that would be very uh, applicable for kids that have had a near death experience, like a dress rehearsal of their death. Yeah, they they know where they're going and they're excited about it, but they their parents are so sad. And
2: have you had children tell you stories about that? Mhm. Yeah, I bet that's a big big relief for them to be able to tell you.
1: Yeah, that it's okay, but but that they that they are wise beyond their years, that they realize it would be hurtful for their parents if they acted excited about what's going to happen. Yeah. Puts them in a awkward situation.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm running into an awkward situation here because while I'm really enjoying this conversation, I also am running out of time. So I'd like to leave us here, and I'd, I'd like to invite any audience who is listening... if, if you know someone who's been using storytelling in a healing situation for over 15 years I would like to invite you to send me their contact information and let me know some of the work they've been doing so that I can examine them as potential interviewees to come on the show as guests this is Ruth Hill I'm Brother Blue
1: poor fool I know nothing And you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. She's wise. She knows everything.
0: <laughs> do you have an offer, Elaine?
2: An offer I do. I, I uh, do a group uh, that is a storytelling group with critiquing and, and uh, the conversation between the storytellers of spiritual and psychological stories. That's one thing. Uh, another is a consultation group that I do for psychologists and physicians and social workers and um, working with story and um, with particular healing situations. I put out a quarterly newsletter. If you would like to sign up for that at topstory7 at net, you can... I will send the quarterly newsletter to you. And if you're driving through and you uh, want to send me a note at topstory7 at comcast.net, I'll let you know uh, what I'm doing.
0: Remind us again what area of the country you're talking about.
2: Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks. You got it.
0: <laughs> so for my offer, I just wanted to remind the audience again that I have an online community com, and that any storyteller who works with children is welcome to join this community and to share photos or audio or video or their written experiences of what it's like to work with children. This storytelling community is free. It doesn't cost anything. And many storytellers have told me that they feel a little isolated in their practice. And this is, just seems like a good solution to being able to discuss um, the ins and outs of working with kids in storytelling also just a reminder if you're new to the cast there are many other interviews on the blog at storytellingwithchildren.com but the community is located at storytellingwithchildren.ningning.com so ellen you have some last thoughts for the international storytelling community you know, I
2: think the international movement needs to keep crafting the balance of animating family and community storytelling at the same time continuing to develop high-quality performance-oriented storytelling. I, I like that balance. I, I think that uh, empowering families and communities to tell stories more and more is very, very important.
0: I am one of those storytellers who can't turn off their ability to seek to serve or to heal others when telling a story. Every story I have, every story I tell has a hidden agenda and I am continually dumbfounded by people or storytellers who talk about the value of entertainment in stories as if that is why you tell stories. Because for me, storytelling is all about how you heal through stories, how you heal individuals, communities, and culture. So listening to tonight's conversation, I am just astounded, I am just astonished by the possibility that modern medicine might accept storytelling as an acceptable form of healing. Uh Uh-huh. Which is essentially what we're talking about. We're talking about using storytelling in very conservative, very mainstream medical situations. That's right. Which is just amazing. And I have to find other people who are doing this. I have to. <laughs> all right our time is up and our show has come to an end
2: bye eric goodbye everyone thank you for being here
0: even though clinical psychologists all over the country pretend they're not in when i call because they hear me say this this is brother wolf and we listening to the art of storytelling with children This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening.